Hello, and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. In some of our past few episodes, we focused on crypto-native hedge funds. We met some outstanding managers and traders with the expertise to help institutional investors gain exposure to digital assets. One essential foundation when starting an investment management practice is its legal structure. That is, the various entities involved and the associated terms and conditions that define how the business is run and the relationships between its various stakeholders. It is a highly complex set of contractual documents that try to achieve the right alignment in matters of governance, economics, and fiduciary responsibilities among all stakeholders involved. There are also very important considerations given to regulatory compliance and applicable fiscal regimes. Add to that the inherent complexity of dealing in and custodying digital assets. Our guest today is Carl Cole Freeman, founder and managing partner of Cole Freeman and Malin LLP. Carl serves as counsel to many of the most prominent hedge fund managers in the United States. He is also well known in the crypto industry for his subject matter expertise and work with managers who invest in non-traditional asset classes. He has guided hundreds of startup managers by launching their first fund and has the breadth of experience to advise very large managers. Carl's firm is unique in that it helps chart a path for clients in an emerging landscape with little legacy. It partners with firms holistically beyond fund formation on a wide array of legal matters ranging from compensation to intellectual property or even real estate. In this episode, we dive into Carl's unconventional journey as both a lawyer and as an entrepreneur and learn about the various facets of his practice. We also hear his thoughts on the state of crypto as it stands coming out of a difficult year. Carl began his financial career at Hambrecht & Quist, one of the earliest technology-focused investment banks and following its acquisition by Chase Manhattan, served as lead counsel for the loan trading and distressed debt business. He then honed his skills as an in-house counsel and compliance officer for multi-strategy hedge funds with global footprints, including Sagamore Hill Capital Management and Standard Pacific Capital. Carl also serves on the board of directors of OKCoin, a globally licensed cryptocurrency exchange. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I grew up in a place that you might not be expecting. I grew up in, in Topeka, Kansas, and spent much of my time there plotting to escape. As a student, I was very focused on that, so I was a pretty diligent student, really wanted to get out and go away for college. I was very active in, in many things, but uh, I was quite notably active in like speech and debate, which is very popular in that part of the country in that time period. It's interesting because I grew up, I went to high school around Paris and France and people travel from all around the world to come to Paris. But I was also very driven by a strong desire to, to explore greener pastures and leave so I can relate. And I found that academic achievement on some level was a way out and was always a focus of mine. So I, I can relate. Do you think you had an aptitude for topics that you find relevant and helpful in your day-to-day -day work today? So that's a great question. I think a little bit because I think I had a sort of an entrepreneurial bent even growing up, um, was interested in, in business and entrepreneurism, not in like a technical finance way, like maybe you were, but more in like a business plan, business idea, big picture way. So, and I think that had always been on my mind. So, you know, obviously at some point I did start my own business and got to explore that a little bit. Then, you know, high school, what is the path 
towards law school? Was it something that you developed over time? When was the realization that you wanted to put yourself, let's face it, it's not an easy curriculum. You know, it's expected to be hard. It's expected to be very competitive. When did you start figuring out that you wanted to put yourself through law school? So um, I went away to college to New York. I went to Columbia. And my first job out of college was at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office as a paralegal at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And I think the die was cast at that point. Not that I was necessarily interested in criminal law, but I think, you know, I have a, like a different view of law school, I think, than you were articulating. Like I found it actually quite intellectually stimulating as opposed to being sort of intimidated by its rigor. And maybe part of that is I approached it with sort of that perspective in mind and I took things that I wanted to take and I studied with professors I wanted to study with and I really didn't pay attention to what was practical or useful. So I had a very sort of intellectual law school experience. That's great to hear. And actually, funnily, I can relate in, in my tenure at um, the University of Chicago. One of the reasons I picked Chicago is because the curriculum was highly flexible and, and I really wanted to challenge myself and take intellectually stimulating classes. And I think I achieved that and built some relationships there. So I can relate. And it's great to hear that you do seem to have a passion for the craft that's led you to, to where you are today. So if you could summarize sort of your professional DNA, I mean, there's definitely an entrepreneurial you started your own business. You know, lawyers go into partnership. Some others go off counts in a corporation or, you know, within investment businesses and so on and so forth. You pick an entrepreneurial path and set up your own firm. Any other characteristics that you found helpful over the course of your career and, and your development? Yeah, I, I think you, you, you sort of touched on it a little bit. Like what I find, I don't want to say this in like a judgy way. I want to, this is just an accurate thing is that law school attracts people who often who tend to be very smart, but also kind of risk averse and maybe like to become experts and play career-wise on their expertise. And that's really not super interesting to me. If I, I help people with funds, right? I, I help people launch funds. If I did plain vanilla equity funds all day, probably, you know, throw myself out the window. It's uninteresting enough. My whole career has been a little bit of an arc of develop, again, like exploring new things, pushing the envelope. I, I have a most unusual legal career, actually. I, I started as a, a litigator at a big law firm, which was fine. No complaints about it. It was super useful and interesting, kind of limiting in what you get to do. And then I reinvented myself as a transactional attorney and went in-house to a boutique investment bank in San Francisco that was called Hamburg & Quist. Not many people remember it anymore, but it was uh, very important in the initial um, technology. And I have changed practice area several times to get to where I am today. And, you know, where I am today, I think is in a position where what my firm and what I'm probably most well known for is being the leading practice for investing in non-traditional assets and new and novel asset classes. I suspect that one of the reasons why you're able to win business, building relationships with entrepreneurs in the field, new fund managers, emerging fund managers, and maybe follow-on offerings and so on and so forth, but still you can relate, right? You can relate because you've gone through not exactly the same journey, but you've pivoted. You've also started new things. Is that sort of a fair assumption? 
it's not only a fair assumption, it, it sounds like you've heard me actually pitch clients because what I frequently tell people, and I think this is true, is I'm a lot like a lot of my clients. We haven't talked about it yet, but I spent I spent 10 years in-house and had you know a little bit of like a, a midlife crisis where I decided to want to work for other people before. And most of clients, the new managers that I meet, are, are literally going through the same thing. They've been working for somebody else or along with somebody else. And they're at the point where they're, they're tired of making somebody else rich. They'd rather go out on their own and make their own business decisions, you know, run the, their, their own firm the way that they want to run it. So I went through that, that same transition at some point. Yeah, and there's this notion of also independence and wanting to free yourself of the constraint of not being entirely aligned with the economic interest and the economic upside of, of the business you're a part of. So, you know, I can relate to that as well. I think it takes a certain type of personality. I think some people, to the point you, you made earlier, whether it is an illegal profession, and I'd say in, in a lot of corners of the financial services profession, risk aversion is widespread. And in some cases, it's justified. You know, people look at their careers as a stream of high risk adjusted returns, might not be a ton of upside potential. But, you know, if you play it right, and, and you do it for a long time, you know, as, as I like to say, your sharp ratio is going to be fairly elevated. Different strokes for different folks who seem to lean more on the entrepreneur side. When did you start formulating a thesis for what has now become your business? And when you started, was that different from today? What was the evolution over the course of time? It's very common that people have an idea when they start a business of what it's going to be like. It's important, I think, not to be too rigid about that because it may not evolve the way that you're expecting. I had been in-house for many years before we started this law firm. And, you know, I, I really liked it. I, I, I liked the people I work with. They were fantastic. But at the end of the day, it was their firm. They ran it the way that they wanted. There's a you, you start to get a sense over time. You watch the work that you're doing, creating a lot of wealth for the people who own it. And, you know, I sort of thought, you know, I, 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 I'm at the point where I can run my own business, make my own business decisions, run it the way that I want. So there was a huge, that was a huge component of it. I think the other component of it was that my partner that I essentially founded the firm with, Bart Mallon and I, had a view that there was a market opportunity for what we wanted to do. And, I, and I, that's kind of a weird thing to say about a law firm, like a legal business. But what we saw was that if you're hiring, like a, you're a hedge fund manager, you're looking to hire a lawyer, you, you were looking, your choices were at the extreme ends of the spectrum. It was like you either hired one of the biggest law firms in the country, or you hired a solo practitioner, essentially. And there wasn't a lot in the middle. Our view was that if you could have a boutique that was a mid-tier boutique that did institutional quality work, that that's where the demand was. That's where, that's what people were not able to find. And we were looking at at the time, and you know, I know you're, you're, you have, you have a, a background in funds. So you, you may remember some of this. Rosting Cass as like sort of a case study, right? So Rosting Cass had positioned itself in the audit space. If you don't want to go with a big four auditor, this is like obviously who you would look at first. And so our view was, well, if we can position ourselves in that space, we don't want a big law firm. This is an obvious choice for you. 
then you're getting incoming from all directions. You're people who who actually may be not right. They need to go with somebody who's more of a solo practitioner. They can't even afford you, but they're looking at you and meeting with you. There's people who are bigger launches who are going to consider an alternative before they decide. Like you're getting a wider variety of the incoming spectrum. So that was that was our, our idea about starting the firm. And, you know, we can talk about this, but I think it's it, it, our thesis in essentially proved correct. However, I do, I do think that things have changed. This was the core of your question. I think we thought we would be like a little 10 lawyer boutique and we're perfectly happy with that idea. And that's not kind of how it's played out. The demand for our firm has been very extreme for a number of years. The market, essentially, the market demand has transformed us into sort of a premium player, a premium product, where we command high rates. Our rates are just as high as big law firms. That wouldn't have been what I had anticipated. And it's a much bigger enterprise than I would have anticipated. It wasn't what we were expecting. We now have nine partners with the 10th joining next month. That's just much bigger than we thought this would be. Sounds incredible. And, and most businesses would want to follow, even though it might have not been aligned with the ideal scale that you wanted to operate in. But I'm sure, you know, on some level, it's defied your own expectations and you draw some satisfaction from the growth. What's interesting is I think in terms of market positioning, because that's that's generic to building a business and running a business at the end of the day, is you start with this value proposition that's okay, we're gonna be in between, as you said. And let's face it, one of the main drivers on the client side is going to be cost. And, you know, when I talk to people, I was talking to one of my friends yesterday, you know, she recently started a Bitcoin venture fund. You know, we were talking about the initial inception and, and the cost that, that went into it. Being a small fund, they just didn't have the resources to go out and seek the, the advice and the counsel of a, of a large firm. And a lot of it was cost driven. But from that, what you're telling me is you've evolved and it, that's sort of the idea because you never really want to compete on price, as we know, Economics 101. You're actually providing a much higher value add because of your specialization. And we'll, we'll talk about that, right? So you've carved a niche where instead of being like this middle tier in terms of cost, you know, like people will go to you because they can't find anything in between, suddenly you become a specialist. And hence, you could justify the higher rates. And probably the best outcome, again, from an economics 101 standpoint, in terms of creating true value add and justifying it. And hence, you're not competing on pricing, you're actually competing on skills. Is that correct? I think that's correct. Essentially, I 100% I, I agree with that. And I think that, you know, if you think about this may be a little too law focused of a comment for this particular podcast, but there's there's certain law firms that develop a reputation for being the best at something. And that really drives them into the premium level. And I like I, I think a good example of that is Gunderson, right? Like for venture fund work, they are the best in class, no offense to anybody else, and including ourselves, but they've really branded themselves that way. And, and that drives a lot of business to them and makes them a premium player. And I think that what has happened is in the non-traditional areas, specifically cryptocurrency, we're considered the best in class. That drives a lot of people to us. Now, I am not willing to 
give up on being cost effective. And so the one way we try to differentiate ourselves, and I think we can, because we don't have the pressures, the economic pressures of a big law firm where the partners are constantly under this pressure to bring in dollars and everybody is, you know, sort of rewarded for billing more time. What we can try to do, especially for startup managers, is create a is focus on process. And that's what I sort of tell people is like, hey, if we take a half step back and we map out the process for your fund launch and we map it out very thoroughly on the front end, and then we very efficiently go through and execute on that process, that will keep the cost down. Like this doesn't have to cost $100,000. If you take a step back, agree on who's going to do what and when, and sort of very efficiently execute on it. So in a sense, you're you're working with your clientele as working against it, right? Which, you know, unfortunately, I don't know if that's the the intent, but to your point, I think, you know, having been on, on the payer side of some of the work that's being done in some of the largest law firms out there, you know, you really feel you're being billed and and sometimes it is a little excessive and, and, and you need to correct for that. I, I can't recall a single legal bill that I've been faced that I haven't had to negotiate down to a certain extent because you really feel like it's a little bit too much and they're, they're really trying to, to bill as much as possible. Well, and yeah, and I think in that regard, I think we're still, uh, we still view ourselves as quite disruptive. And to to contrast your experience, like I rarely get complaints about our bills, but we did something very fundamental that seems so simple, but is so rare in a law firm, which is that we don't compensate the attorneys here for billing more time. That's not how they're rewarded. Like they have zero incentive to spend one second more on a client than they have to. Instead, we compensate them. We look at two things. We look at we, we look at feedback from clients because if you work here, this is a very like client facing position, even if you're a junior attorney. And we reward people based on the overall profitability of the firm, not on the hours that they actually bill. That's kind of heresy in the legal business. You know, we worked with consultants who specialize in law firms and they think that that's insane because the way that you really, the whole model is designed to squeeze every dollar out of the junior people who work for you. But if you don't need that, if you're not, you know, if you don't support that giant infrastructure and you don't, you're not hungry like that, then you can have a model where you're not doing that, where people don't have to bill those hours, where not, you're not incentivizing people to bill more hours where people likely stay with you longer. It has all sorts of collateral benefits that I think are more important than squeezing every dollar out of every person who works here. And so we think of ourselves as a little bit disruptive like that. This is true again for any business. You get what you reward, right? And so you probably spend a lot of time thinking as far as the funds you advise in terms of aligning economic interests. And there's some templates for that. But generically speaking, you know, you can really tailor the economic construct of a business in a way to achieve certain goals, especially motivational goals. So on to the foundation itself. So you mentioned a co-founder. You mentioned that now you've expanded the partner pool to nine going 10 partners. Was it really just you and, and your co-founder initially and building on that? Or were there other people involved initially? I'm, I'm trying to think about the human capital build of things. Where did you find the talent? Who did you convince to come and join an upstart as opposed to them following the more traditional path? 
So some of this has to do with the what's going on in a specific time. So we started the firm in 2009. So, you know, as I'm sure you remember, it wasn't the greatest year for many businesses. It was a terrible year for big law. They weren't hiring. They were laying people off. It was initially basically a little bit of that story of two guys and two laptops and no clients. Like it literally started as, as basic as that. We were able because of the timing to attract better candidates that we would have during a big bull market. And that was super helpful in the beginning. I, I think that my personal philosophy about talent, and this has been especially true in the last few years, is that there's a war for talent. There's always a war for the good talent. Like you have to think of it that way. And a lot of your decisions need to be made with that in mind. And if you're not making your decisions based on that, you know, sort of perpetual talent war, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose good people. And so that's still our philosophy today. So we can't and we're not going to try to pay people the rates that they would make at Cravath and the mega high-end law firms. But we try to offer, think about it as apples and oranges. We try to try to offer something different. Their hours expectations are going to be more like 1500 than 2000 a year. We try to offer benefits that other people don't offer. For example, you know, one of the things that was coming up over the last few years was childcare was becoming a burden for people. So now when we have someone who has a child, we give them a subsidy towards childcare for a year. Just trying to listen to what the com actual complaints are that we hear from the junior people and kind of meet them where they are instead of, you know, I, I think this is, big law does this and in, in, in big companies to some extent too, they just, their answer to talent war and talent's tight, they just throw money at people. And that is a good temporary solution but I don't know that it necessarily attracts who you want. We're seeing it in the way people are approaching employment decisions. I mean, I know we're uh, we're sort of staring at a, a potential looming recession right now, so that might impact how people react. But I, I truly think that the workforce approaches their relationship with the employer differently now than they did. I, I think in terms of the fulfillment that people find in it, the way they assess the trade-off as to giving up their time versus how much money they're going to make has evolved. I mean, socially, there's definitely been a sea of change over the last decade and a half. So I think staying on top of those trends potentially allows you to hire a different mindset. And certainly, the probably the culture within your firm is going to be a little bit different than at a Cravath or you know some of the larger firms or Sidley or Kirkland. So you know you probably, and I'm assuming, want to hire individuals who are receptive to that new way of thinking. That's 100% correct. And I mean, I think to work here, you need sort of different skills than would make you successful at, you know, Sidley. And I, I actually, Sidley's great. I was a client of Sidley's. Like, and I'm not saying anything negative about Sidley. Sidley's just generic in that sense. And, you know, as a junior person, you're going to have to be much more independent we're going to expect you to manage up where, you know, I think that there's a, the difference that I explain to people is if, if at a big law firm, you have a, a call, the associate has a call with the partner and a client, they get off the call and then the partner tells the associate what to do. And at this law firm, we get off the call and the associate tells the partner what to do. Like that's what we're expecting of people. And that is not for everyone. That's universal. Like some people are not comfortable in that environment and some people thrive in it. 
but that's essentially what we're looking for. We want every single person here is expected to be client facing. We haven't lost a lot of people to big firms over the last few years, but there was a wave of it about five years ago where they were swooping up our people. And one person I recall went to a big law firm, same practice, and I was negotiating something with the partner that he worked for. And I had my associate and we had the initial call and everyone said, hello. My former associate said, hi. He never spoke again throughout the entire negotiation. Whereas my associate did 70% of the talking because she was running the deal and knew all the details. So that's a different culture. It's a different, it's for a different type of person. It's a culture of, I'd say, at least aspiring ownership. You know, I, I, for me, the people that I've always tended to hire and, and granted, you know, it's a mentality of acting and thinking like an owner. It's the notion of a self-managed organization to a certain extent. I mean, you need direction, you need vision, but there needs to be accountability between the different, the functional nodes within the organization. And, you know, I think if, again, it takes, uh, to your point, it takes a very specific set of individuals, but when you, you find those individuals, it clicks, it works well. So you start obviously prior to digital assets and crypto, you know, being fully relevant yet, uh, especially from a fund formation standpoint, when was the inflection point in getting involved with digital asset fund formation? When did that happen and what prompted it? You know, because we do a lot of non-traditional work, we had done some long Bitcoin fund work in the summer of 2016. The first person that I met that was, that I personally met that, that was focused on that area was Richard Crave from Numeri. And I don't know if, how much you know about Numeri, but Numeri is a little bit different. It's actually an equities fund, but it has a, uh, it has a model that data scientists from around the world contribute to. And it's, it's, it's sort of a, a contest. And for positive contributions, Numeri has a token called the Numeraire, and you earn Numeraire for your contributions to the model. This was quite innovative in 2016. And then the second person I met was Olaf Carlson Lee. You know, I remember meeting Olaf, and he was talking about what he was going to do. And he explained to me very slowly and deliberately what an ICO was and how it worked. The meeting literally blew my mind. Olaf and some of the other original cryptocurrency fund managers were meeting with lots of law firms and they were getting a very cold response. And Bart Mallon and I were instantly taken with it and really felt like we could help people figure out how to do this. And so in September 2016, we launched, I think, both Polychain and Metastable in the same month. And those were really the first two sort of like Polychain type funds. Now, following that demand for that, you know, lots of people saw what they were doing and wanted to do it. And nobody else would do that work. And I remember it coming up a couple times and other prominent lawyers who are fund lawyers at big firms being saying kind of derogatory negative things about it. Then there was an article in a publication called Hedge Fund Alert, probably around May of 2017. And it said that Cole Freeman and Mallon and the fund admin, M.G. Stover, had launched 
I don't remember the number. It cited a number like 55 cryptocurrency funds in like nine months. And that was a real turning point as far as interest in the broader fund service provider community in this, because those are, those are real numbers, right? Like that's, that's numbers that's people and can interpret that to a dollar sign that is significant. And I think it became clear to people that this was becoming a prominent asset class. That was our initial introduction to it. You know, Olaf said to me once, you know, there's, there's people who, when they start thinking about blockchain and cryptocurrency, can't stop thinking about it. I remember him saying that because it really resonated with me because that I could trace that back to the moment that I literally the moment that I met him, where he told me things about what he was going to do that I couldn't stop thinking about. So very inspirational, right? I mean, if I hear it correctly, there is, on the one hand, identifying an area where others are skittish or probably leery of of taking the risk. And we go back to your your original DNA of, you know, wanting to tackle things that that others aren't necessarily tackling. And there is an inspiration moment. And the people you're referring to are, they're really pioneers in the space. I mean, going back to, we're talking now many, many years ago. So if you imagine the foresight and the visionary aspect of what these guys were trying to do, I can understand why at the time, and kudos to you for recognizing that this was more than just a fluke. Describe to me in layman terms, obviously, you know, we have to battle the complexity here for the audience, you know, the activities and, and, and what you see in the market today. Let's talk about the scope of services that you provide. Yeah. So one thing I want to say, just because I think, I think you might find it interesting, like, so Polychain Fund One was actually, a, is, is a hedge fund. It's a hedge fund that makes deep investments in, at the time, originally in its original iteration, um, you know, token projects, SAFs, but it is styled as a hedge fund. And that was Olaf's conception of it. And I think that was quite brilliant. You're right that now it's, it runs the gamut, um, hedge style products, venture style products. I actually don't like the term crypto venture. I like the term closed end crypto because to me, it seemed it's very different, but that's just semantics, and then hybrids in between. So our firm is, I will frame it this way. If I was working at a big law firm doing this work, I'd be a practice area specialist. I would be like in the funds group and I would help people launch funds and do certain compliance work and maybe some work related to their investors. If somebody needed to negotiate counterparty agreements, that might be another partner. And if they needed employment-related work, they're going to fire their CFO. That might be another partner. The way that our firm is oriented and our attorneys are oriented, we consider ourselves industry specialists. And so fund managers are our industry. And that's a very sort of California law firm thing. Like there's, there's tech-focused law firms that te- were startup technology companies. They're, they're industry specialists in that, and they do like a wide range of services for that. That's, that's, what, that's how we view ourselves. So we do work on the fund work, we work on the partnership work, but we also work on management company work, employment work. We can do intellectual property related work. We can work on people's leases and subleases and all of the things that you need to run that type of business, except for litigation. How much more complex is fund formation 
in the context of digital assets. And why is that? I think, you know, you already alluded to some of the nuances. I, I actually like your close-end fund analogy because, you know, I think if for anyone who knows how, how funds work and the more liquid side of the spectrum where there are mechanisms for creation and redemption of capital versus the, the venture model, which is very much a capital call-based model where you invest and you leave the money and let it work for a period of time. But can you talk about why is it more complex in the context of digital assets specifically? I will, but I want to say that I don't normally frame it that way. In fact, I'm I when when I speak about this, I usually am telling people, reassuring people that this isn't that different from the funds that they're used to. But you're right, there there's definitely complexity to it. And and I think that that's more obvious on the closed end side because like you said, if you are going to have you know, a, a technology venture fund, and um, you would invest in early stage companies. And there's certain norms as to how that works. And there's sort of a very clear waterfall as to how you get compensated. And there was a wave, and I think this wave is probably has has waned a little, but is still there of managers, traditional venture managers, who in their next fund want to do token projects and blockchain projects. What's complicated about that or what's different about that is you could be investing in some blockchain companies and technology companies, but then you've invested in a token project and you might get tokens. And even to invest in that project, you probably need some tokens, right? Like you, nobody, you, you know, most of these projects, you're not like wiring dollars, you're sending them ETH or Bitcoin or something. So the fund itself holds these liquid assets and their value can swing really wildly. And so what does that, what does that do? What does that do to your waterfall? Um, what if you have your first close and then invest in a project and get a real quick token back and the token goes up and down really quickly? Like how do you, how do you deal with that for investors in the subsequent close? Like you have to, you have to sort of rethink some of the norms that you would have in a traditional closed-end venture fund. What's actually really, to me, I know this is nerdy, but I, what I really like about part of that process is that then what happens is you have investors coming in. They're used to one thing, and there's an education project of explaining to them why this has to look a little different. And why some of the things that they are, are accustomed to getting in a traditional finance fund are detrimental to the fund and its investors in this context. It's interesting because it got me thinking that let's say you have a fund and, and you hold liquid tokens. Are you seeing clients on the fund side making actual trading decisions? In other words, saying, well, we think the token is now trading. We think it's it skyrocketed. We want to actually take some chips off the table, generate some liquidity. The corollary of that is, as we know, on the liquid or hedge fund side, you have negative performance covenants. You have investment guidelines. You have this notion of risk management, which is, to my knowledge, is fairly absent from a venture fund. There's no notion of risk management in a venture fund. There's deployment periods, there's uh, harvesting periods and things like that. There's no notion of like you know managing your downside. So how do you deal with that? Well, yeah, I think the terms are different. You know, I, I think on the closed end side, if you're investing in token projects and you are going to potentially have tokens, I, I think that the 
manager needs the ability to make some decisions about what's going to happen to those tokens, right? Are they going to are they going to are they going to continue to hold them? Are they going to take this off the table and recycle? Like what they're going to do? All of that has to be baked into the offering. On the hedge fund side, I agree that like notion you could have that notion of sort of risk management, and I think there are managers out there that are employing that a little bit from traditional finance and maybe somewhat successfully in mitigating some of the big swings. But part of what's driven people, investors into this asset class on the hedge fund side has been just eye-popping returns. Like, like I have quite a few clients that have a year of return somewhere where they're over a thousand percent. You're not going to get that if you are not swinging for the fences. You know, and then they also in crypto winter times are going to have big drawdowns. I mean, we're in our second crypto winter, right? The first one, you know, some people didn't make it, but lots of folks who were down 80% in 2018 went way above their high water mark and, and, and continue on to this day. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a strong belief that that can happen again. And likely will. I'm in the camp that, you know, I think there's there's upside because inherently the whole set of assets are essentially one big option on the upside of this this ecosystem. Let's talk a little bit about emerging managers, because I think that's something that I like to focus on. It's the the initial journey, specifically seeding, what you're seeing both again on the close end as well as the, the liquid side of the business. I'd love to understand whatever you can share that can help the audience understand who was and who is allocating to crypto at present. Who is seeding those deals? And if you could discuss sort of the, the evolution here and give an idea of the scale that people typically get started with. There's a benchmark on the, the traditional finance side where, you know, if you run the numbers and you look at the economics, uh, especially with dwindling fees over the years, but let's just assume you were able to get a two and 20 deal, you'd need at least a hundred million in AUM in order to, for it to make sense, in order to pay the bills, in order to keep the lights on and to be able to perform your work as a portfolio manager? I'm reluctant to like say specific names of investors, but I would say that from what I've seen, many of the most prominent institutional investors have dipped their toe into crypto, into clients of ours that are larger and more institutional. What we, what we were often seeing, and I, I, I'm sort of categorizing this as pre-crypto winter, so like up until like last May or June, was big name investors exploring crypto, looking for the most institutional managers they could find, making writing checks that are far smaller than they would typically write. Like somebody who usually invests for 150 million, investing 25 million. So a lot of that kind of exploration. Right now, it's not a great fundraising picture. There are, we're kind of in what I, in the middle of what I would call like the second wave, I kind of made this up, but um, what I mean by that is we got to the point where we had big institutional fund managers that invest in digital assets, Polychain, Andreessen, Galaxy, Paradigm, and they're spinning out their lieutenants, right? Like Katie Hahn is like, Hahn Capital is like an obvious, very successful example of that. Perfect timing, by the way, for raising that capital. 
Um, and there's a whole bunch of other people who are in that category that are working on their launches now and are not going to raise the capital they would have pre-correction and I think are having trouble attracting the seed deals that they would have gotten pre-correction. So I, I've seen seed deals be put on hold, pulled back. There are still some um, out there. But generally speaking, I think a successful crypto launch right now is going to be between 50 and 100 million, whereas those same folks a year ago would have been probably a quarter billion. From a seeding standpoint, you know, are we seeing the same market standards as we see in TradFi where typically we'll have preferably a revenue share in exchange for the early support? Where do things trade uh, in terms of management and promote or, or performance fees? From the little that I've seen, managers are able to command a, a slightly higher level of fees because of the complexity and also because the asset base is a little bit smaller. Is that sort of your sense as well? I think the seeding deals have the same sort of negotiation bandwidth about like what the, what, what the seeder is going to get. Um, as it would in traditional finance. The fees were pre-correction if you had, if you were a successful manager, if you'd put up a thousand percent returns at one point or something like that, you people were, were raising their fees and had higher fees. Certainly two and twenty was people weren't generally below two and twenty. In this environment, I think we'll see going forward. I mean, I, I think one thing that had happened, which is now, and I think this is for the better, has shifted is there was a lot of FOMO, investor FOMO, and that encouraged people to invest in things without following their normal process. And I mean, the obvious example of that is those who invested in FTX. I think everybody's well aware of what that environment was like. And there are many prominent investors who said, I can't do that. It's just not our process. I think that that was not just in those kind of companies, but also people were worried about missing out on certain fund opportunities. And I expect going forward, we're going to have a level of diligence that is much more consistent with what you see in traditional finance and probably more fee pressure. That's good color. Now, hopefully managers are able to maintain at least a fair compensation to the upside, given the types of gains that they can generate for their investors. So given the capacity constraints, I mean, you've outlined sort of very, very ballpark the numbers that people get started with. It's pretty obvious back of the envelope, running the numbers for those of us who know the economics of running a business like that. What proportion of deals typically include support and what are the main forms? The ones we can think of is raising equity for the management company. It could be in the form of a loan. Some deals have prepaid management fees, for example. What are you seeing out there to help founders have enough runway to prove themselves at the management company level? And I think it's probably because you know this, but this is much more common that you get uh, investors in a management company for a cryptocurrency fund manager than in traditional finance, in my experience. It could be more capital intensive to start those businesses. And I think that that drives a lot of that. Um, and historically, we've seen a lot of those investments and, and historically, they've been quite lucrative for people. I do see those deals. I still see investors interested in those deals for promising managers. I've also seen recently, and when I say recently, 
I would say, you know, there's like two phases of this. One is sort of the market correction late last spring, and the second is FTX. And the fact that exposure to FTX, whether they've disclosed it or not, hurt a lot of folks, and they may have, you know, the risk of contagion from other businesses that were exposed to FTX. Post FTX, I've I've seen people pull out of deals that undoubtedly they would have gone through with prior to the second week in November. This brings us to the topic of risk management. And again, investment guidelines, negative performance thresholds, and things like that, that allow investors to to redeem or stop the manager out in a case of more liquid strategies. Have you seen it change over the last, let's say, 12 months in how partnership agreements are written, you know, how terms are being laid out to really enforce what is a time-tested set of mechanisms on the TradFi side. I mean, look, risk management is generic on some level. There are specificities that tie to what does risk management mean in the context of digital assets, like 24-7, liquidity patterns might be different. The microstructure counterparty risk is one that you've outlined that we all became painfully aware of. But are you seeing just a template being applied to this or new approaches to dealing with risk management covenants in those deals? Well, I'll say a couple of things. So first on the counterparty risk, and the counterparty risk was totally foreseeable when you're dealing with enterprises that are trying to like hold themselves outside of any regulatory framework or having anyone look under the hood. Definitely a new emphasis, and I think a welcome emphasis on counterparty risk that is reminiscent of what it was like in 2009, 2010, following you know the collapse of Lehman and, and that the wake of that. On risk parameters, in a fund, in, a, in like, let's say a crypto hedge fund offering, I tell my clients, you need to think very carefully about agreeing to that and should kind of back test it a little bit. Things will be proposed by an institutional investor. We would like to see this in the offering. And frequently I'm in conversations where my client explains to the investor, hey, if we had done that, had that in place in 2018, you would have missed out on all this upside. So I think that the first crypto winter and its subsequent rebound mitigates some of that. People should be reasonable. Do you know what I mean? Like, listen to the proposal. I don't think anybody wants to reject something just to reject it. But in the end of the day, if tightening, you know, this is, this is, this is a volatile asset class and if tightening those parameters may not be in the best interest of everyone. And it may not be that all investors would like that. They might be sort of willing to roll the dice a little bit more here. And it's interesting because, you know, we've seen this happen and creep into TradFi as hedge funds, as an asset class became more and more allocated by probably the most conservative set of investors, right? The pensions, the endowments, the insurance companies that have stringent risk management requirements. And so if you think back to the olden days of the sources or the tutors where they would take on big swings, not to forget about the second and third order risk effects, but still keeping in mind that if you're aspiring to outsize returns, protecting your downside in a way that's unrealistic, given the types of underlying assets and the underlying correlations between those assets that you hold in your portfolio and the instruments, you know, might lead to unrealistic expectations. And, you know, I think on some level, you know, it's going to need 
an adjustment for those investors who want to understand and master this asset class. They're going to become have to become acquainted. It's not just saying you apply the template. You have to get up to speed with what that means. Because to your point, it may lead to unintended consequences where you'll be on the phone calling your manager and saying, why'd you miss out on this upside? Why did we miss out and say, well, you know what? This is what we agreed to and we did exactly what we promised. So I like that you're bringing this up. Hopefully as a counselor to, to funds, you know, you're able to strike the right balance there you know, with their own expertise, but also from what you've seen over time. Just in the spirit of time here, you've talked about some of the impacts of the, the crypto winter on fund formation and, and overall trends in terms of the amounts that are being deployed and recent skittishness around you know, allocating to the asset class. Do you see a noticeable impact on your practice? from the current situation? I mean, there, there are two things. One is the macro environment overall, and then there's definitely crypto-specific events that have probably led some investors to, to leave the stage for, for a while. Prior to the market correction, I personally was getting eight to 10 people a week contacting me about launching their funds. So that's a magnitude of like 30 to 40 a month. And I could maybe do like six to eight fund launches a month going at 110%. Now I would say it's more in a normal range of three to four people a week, which is a healthier, seems like a healthier environment. But the, the managers that I'm talking to on the digital asset side are more serious um, and substantial by and large than what I was seeing, you know, before the correction where it was a, a wider variety. People, you know, with limited crypto background and limited, sometimes people with limited crypto background and limited fund background. So sort of that a little bit of a dangerous, reckless combination of that. But that being said, the volatility has not sort of impacted our business in a negative way because all of these sort of significant events, unfortunately for, for our clients, create a lot more legal work. And so I would say we're just as busy as we were even doing fewer fun launches than we were a year ago. It's the old adage, you know, you need wine in good and bad times. You need lawyers in good and bad times. It's sort of a good sort of counter cyclical way to play it. Who are the winners and losers? There's a lot of negativity out there. People have talked about the excesses, the losses, but I'm assuming some clients of yours probably did pretty well over the last year, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you asked that because I think not everybody appreciates this and, and clearly you you understand it. There are always winners when there's losers. I do have clients that have done very well. So here's the categories as I see them. I think the big winners are the biggest crypt institutional crypto managers that had little or no exposure to three big events that look badly for an investor. So one is Terra Luna, the second is Three Arrows Capital, and the third is FTX. And there's more people in that category than you would think by reading you know, the headlines. A lot of the bigger institutional investors passed on FTX. They don't invest if they can't go through their proper process. Some of those clients of mine who are in this category are actually raising new funds now. And I think that makes sense. They've got a lot to differentiate themselves from, from, from other people. I think the other big winner long-term, although I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure you would see it yet in trading volume and stock price or whatever, has got to be U.S. regulated exchanges because the cavalier attitude that people had 
towards this like offshore unregulated world, I think has now been that ship has sailed. If you're going to trade on the exchange, there are limitations to it, but I've always had big institutional crypto clients that had a tremendous bias towards U.S. exchanges. And now I think that's much more universal. So you're referring to the Coinbase's of the world when you say, you know, particularly like take aside the performance, the financial performance obviously has taken a hit as, as volumes have come down. But it leads us to, can you give us a sense of your views on regulation as a whole? And people fall into two camps. People think in terms of enabling the industry and people think in terms of hindering the industry. And obviously from a policymaking standpoint, we are yet to see a decisive move on the part of of regulators on the part of Congress to really hone in on this topic. Right now, we're in the punitive stage. We saw an announcement from the Justice Department today. I think it was more of a wanting to make a splash out of it and make an example out of this event. However, we are yet to see comprehensive action. There are some corners. Gary Gensler goes out publicly and talks about the fact that the regulatory framework is already in place, that a lot of tokens are securities and they should be regulated as such. So can you give us your opinion on the matter, if you could share? I think regulation would be positive. Legislative regulation and regulation that goes through proper administrative rulemaking would be positive. Regulation through enforcement is a ridiculous situation to be in. With all due respect to Gary Gensler, who you know I have nothing against, that's not his decision. The SEC doesn't get to decide what's a security and what's not a security. Courts will decide that. That's what they're fighting with Ripple about. I understand that's their position. I think it's an appropriate position for them to take and uh, advise my clients to assume it's correct, but it's really not his decision. What would you like to see on the regulatory side that would make sense? You know, obviously you're, you're a legal professional, you're well-versed in the space. Can you just outline probably two to three points that you'd like to see implemented, sort of a wish list, not to say that it will happen. There are a lot of dependencies for that. What were the things you would want to drive at? So my number one wish would be that there was a framework for U.S. regulated exchanges that are properly audited and supervised to be able to trade tokens that are considered securities, that are clearly securities. So whatever that framework is, I think that would be tremendously helpful to allow a regulated space, a supervised space where people could trade in all these instruments that they're going to Binance to access. And so you're saying that the, the current framework is deterring and, and really preventing people from doing, for trading and interacting with regulated venues because they don't feel like there either are such venues or they're not regulated in the proper manner to make it conducive to doing business. And hence, most of that business is going offshore. Am I interpreting that correctly? They can't access certain product in a U.S. regulated environment. And if we could have a framework where people could launch a token and it could be done in the U.S. and not in Switzerland, and you could then buy it on Kraken and Coinbase, that's far more secure than the, what we have right now. And it's better for my clients from a counterparty risk standpoint than trading with you know, finance. It makes sense. And also, you know, on some level, it's letting innovation take place 
offshore as opposed to onshore, especially in, in the field of financial innovation, financial instruments, which are very important for the development of financial markets. And there's a technology angle and there's an employment angle to it as well. By not addressing that, I think the government essentially is is still getting in the way of innovation occurring onshore versus offshore. And this is something I feel you know strongly about. You're seeing offshore entities and efforts being and, and jurisdictions being the beneficiaries. I mean, Singapore has emerged as, as a big hub. Switzerland, to your point, Dubai in the Middle East is trying to establish itself as, as a leader. We need to reclaim leadership, doing it thoughtfully here in the U.S. because it will yield to success. It will yield to a much safer market uh, in the end and good financial outcomes and economic outcomes for anyone involved. So as an entrepreneur, as someone who stepped in an arena where few had stepped, what do you feel you haven't accomplished yet? It seems like you know, you've outperformed your uh, your most ambitious goals when it came to this business. My answer to that may not be what you're expecting, Maxime. Like, I'm like a kid from Kansas who, when I, and I imagined what was possible in my life, it, what it could be like, I far exceeded what I even thought was possible. So I, I try not to think about things in that framework. Like, I, I'm really quite satisfied with what I have. And in fact, you could take half of it away from me and that would be just fine as well. What I really am most grateful for is that, and I don't think this is true of a lot of lawyers, like I love, I come into work every day and I love it. And I think the people around me love it. And we talk about the work that we're doing and get really excited about it and get a lot of satisfaction in working with clients especially in the in cryptocurrency and digital assets and that is invaluable. I feel like I'm almost I'm speaking to, you know, a tech entrepreneur, founder, building the future, coming into work to your point or, you know, I I think harkening back to the times when people were creating credit default swaps at JP Morgan in the evenings just writing the docs, coming up with the ISDAs, the financial engineering, working on the cutting edge stuff. And you're right. I suspect that a lot of attorneys probably don't feel the same way. So it's good to hear you talk about your passion. I think it comes across and hopefully listeners get a little bit of taste of what they could be exposed to if they tip their toes into something new, something exciting, something that gives us all collectively the potential to redefine how things are done, to think about things in a different way, and to imagine the potential. It's sort of also great that from what I'm gathering, everything that's happening now is gravy for you. I mean, you set your goals, you've outperformed, and I'm assuming now you're more poised in the way you're addressing the future, which gives you more optionality, I would think. Yeah, I think that that's, that's 100% correct. I love this business. I love the work that we do here. It would be super exciting if there's a next asset class to dig our teeth into, but this one is never a dull there's never a dull moment with this one either i couldn't be happier with where things are right now great well I'm, I'm glad to hear it carl it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast i know how busy you are i appreciate you taking the time to to chat about your business about the industry about your vision for the industry and i look forward to staying in touch and seeing your business progress very thankful for the time you spent with us today thank you for having me this podcast is produced by rado venture management llc rvm RVM is not an investment advisor. 